Counsels of the Aged to the Young and Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander It is a matter of serious regret that young persons are commonly so little disposed to listen to the advice of the aged. This prejudice seems to have its origin in an apprehension that austerity and rigor naturally belong to advanced years, and that the loss of all susceptibility of pleasure from those scenes and objects which afford delight to the young produces something of an ill-natured or envious feeling toward them. Now it cannot be denied that some of the aged are chargeable with the faults of being too rigid and exacting from youth the same steady gravity which is becoming in those who have lived long, and have had much experience in the world, not remembering that the constitutional temperament of these two periods of human life is very different. In youth, the spirits are buoyant, the susceptibilities lively, the affections ardent, and the hopes sanguine. To the young, everything in the world wears a garb of freshness and the novelty and variety of the scenes presented keep up a constant excitement. These traits of youthful character, as long as irregularity and excess are avoided, are not only allowable but amiable, and would in that age be badly exchanged for the more sedate and grave emotions which are the natural effects of increase in years, and of a long and painful experience. But it is greatly to be desired that the lessons of wisdom taught by the experience of one set of men should be made available to the instruction of those who come after them. We have therefore determined to address a few short hints of advice to the rising generation on the subjects of deep and acknowledged importance to all. But previously to commencing, we would assure them that it is no part of our object to interfere with their innocent enjoyments, or to deprive them of one pleasure which cannot be shown to be injurious to their best interests. We wish to approach you, dear youth, in the character of affectionate friends, rather than that of dogmatical teachers or stern reprovers. We would therefore solicit your patient, candid, and impartial attention to the following counsels. Number one, resolve to form your lives upon some certain principles, and to regulate your actions by fixed rules. Man was made to be governed by reason and not by mere accident or caprice. It is important, therefore, that you begin early to consider and inquire what is the proper course of human conduct and to form some plan for your future lives. The lack of such consideration is manifest in the conduct of multitudes. They are governed by the impulse of the moment reckless of consequences. They have fixed no steady aim and have adopted no certain principles of action. Living thus at random, it would be a miracle if they went uniformly right. In order to your pursuing a right path, you must know what it is, and to acquire this knowledge, you must divest yourself of thoughtless giddiness. You must take time for serious reflection. It will not answer to adopt without consideration the opinions of those who may be about you, for they may have some sinister design in regard to you, or they may themselves be misled by error or prejudice. Persons already involved in dissipation or entangled in error naturally desire to keep themselves in countenance by the number of followers whom they can seduce into the paths of vice. As reasonable creatures, therefore, judge for yourselves what course it is right and fitting that you should pursue. Exercise your own reason independently and impartially. 
And don't give yourselves up to be governed by mere caprice and fashion or by the opinions of others. Secondly, while you are young, avail yourselves of every opportunity of acquiring useful knowledge. Reason should guide us, but without correct knowledge, reason is useless, just as the most perfectly formed eye would be useless without light. There is in every man a natural thirst for knowledge, which needs only to be cultivated and rightly directed. All have not equal opportunities of obtaining important knowledge, but all have more advantages for this object than they improve. The sources of information are innumerable. The principal, however, are books and living men. In regard to the former, no age of the world which has passed was so favored with a multiplicity of books as our own. Indeed, the very number and diversity of character and tendency of authors now create one of the most obvious difficulties to those who are destitute of wise advisers. It would be an unwise counsel to tell you to read indiscriminately whatever comes to hand. The press gives circulation not only to useful knowledge, but to air dressed up plausibly in the garb of truth. Many books are useless. Others are on the whole injurious, and some are impregnated with deadly poison. Waste not your time in works of idle fiction. Don't touch the book which exhibits vice in an alluring form. Seek the advice of judicious friends in the choice of books. But you may also learn much from listening to the conversation of the wise and good. There is scarcely a person so ignorant who has lived any time in the world, who cannot communicate some profitable hint to the young. Avail yourselves, then, of every opportunity of learning what you do not know. And let not pride prevent you from seeking instruction, lest by this means you should betray your ignorance. Cherish the desire of knowledge, and keep your mind constantly awake and open to instruction from every quarter. But especially I would recommend to you the acquisition of self-knowledge. Know yourself was a precept held in such high esteem among the ancients that the honor of inventing it was claimed for several of their wisest men. And not only so, but on account of its superlative excellence, it was believed by many to have been uttered by the oracle of Apollo at Delphos, at which, as Pliny informs us, it was conspicuously written in letters of gold over the door of the temple. And a species of knowledge is also inculcated in the Christian scriptures as most useful and necessary. Examine yourselves, says Paul, whether you are in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves. And in the Old Testament, the value of this knowledge is also fully recognized, where we are exhorted to commune with our own hearts and to keep our hearts with all diligence and the possession of it is made an object of fervent prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart. As this knowledge is necessary to all, so it is placed within the reach of all. But it cannot be acquired without diligent self-examination. To this duty there exists in human nature a strong repugnance, partly from natural and partly from moral causes, so that by most it is entirely neglected to their exceeding great detriment. But when it is attempted, we are in great danger of being misled by self-love and prejudice. To acquire any true knowledge of ourselves, some good degree of honesty and impartiality is essentially requisite. But an honest desire to arrive at the truth is not the only prerequisite to self-knowledge. 
The mind must be enlightened in regard to the standard of rectitude to which we ought to be conformed. The entrance of your word gives light. The word of God should dwell richly in us, and by the rules and principles of the sacred volume, we should form all our sentiments respecting ourselves. This is the candle of the Lord which searches the inward parts of man, and without such a lamp it would be as impossible to obtain any considerable degree of self-knowledge as to distinguish the objects in a dark room without a light. Self-examination accompanied with a careful perusal of the Holy Scriptures will lead us daily to a more thorough knowledge of our own character. Beware of the common illusion of forming your estimate of yourselves from the favorable opinions of those around you. They cannot know the secret principles from which you act, and flattery may have much influence in leading them to speak in your praise. Seize favorable opportunities of judging of the latent strength of your passions. The fact is that until some new conjuncture or occasion elicits our feelings, we are as ignorant of what is within us as other persons are. Study also your constitutional temperament and consider attentively the power which particular objects and circumstances have over you. You may often learn, even from your enemies and calumniators, what are the weak points in your character. There are sagacious and detecting faults, and generally have some shadow of pretext for what they allege against us. We may, therefore, derive more benefit from the sarcasms of our foes than from the flattery of friends. Learn also to form a correct estimate of your own abilities, as this is necessary to guide you in your undertakings. Number three, be careful to form good habits. Almost all permanent habits are contracted in youth and these do in fact form the character of the man through life. It is William Paley, I believe, who remarks that we act from habit nine times where we do once from deliberation. Little do young persons apprehend the momentous consequences of many of their most frequently repeated actions. Some habits are merely inconvenient, but have no moral quality. Others affect the principles of our conduct and become sources of good or evil to an incalculable degree. As to the former, they should be avoided, as detracting from our comfort and ultimately interfering with our usefulness. But the latter should be deprecated as laying the foundation of a wicked character and as standing in the way of all mental and moral improvement. Number four, be particular in selecting the company which you keep and the friendships which you form. Tell me, says the proverb, what company you keep and I will tell you what you are. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Vice is more easily and extensively diffused by improper companions than by all other means. As one infected sheep communicates disease to a whole flock, so one sinner often destroys much good by corrupting all the youth who fall under his influence. When vicious men are possessed of wit and fascinating manners, their conversation is most dangerous to the young. We would entreat you, dear young friends, to form an intimacy with no one whose principles are suspicious. The friendship of profligate men is exceedingly dangerous. Don't listen to their fair speeches and warm professions of attachment. Fly from contact with them as from one infected with the plague. Form no close alliance with such. No more think of taking them to your bosom than you would a viper. 
Don't gaze on their beauty nor allow yourselves to be charmed with their fascination of manners. Under these specious appearances a deleterious poison lurks. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers is the exhortation of Scripture. And what could be more unseemly and incongruous than for an amiable and virtuous woman to be indissolubly united to an unprincipled debauchee? Or for a good man to be connected with a woman destitute of piety and virtue? Be especially careful, therefore, and form an alliance for life. Seek a connection with the wise and good, and you'll become wiser and better by converse with such. Number five, endeavor to acquire and maintain a good reputation. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. A ruined fortune may be recovered. A lost reputation? Never. Young men are often laying the foundation of an unenviable reputation while they are thinking of no such thing. They never dream that the character which they attain at school or college will probably be lasting as life. The youth, who is known to be addicted to falsehood, knavery, treachery, and so on, when arrived at the age of man will be viewed by those who know him with distrust. A stain on the character is not easily washed out. A distant period, the faults and follies of use may be revived to a man's confusion and injury. But especially as a female character exquisitely delicate. A small degree of imprudence will often fix a stigma on the gay young lady which no subsequent sobriety can completely erase. We do not mean that the young should cherish a false sense of honor, which would lead them to fight and contend for reputation. No man ever secured or increased a good name by shedding the vital blood of a human being. Reputation which we recommend must arise from a life of consistent and uniform well-doing. Prize such a character as of inestimable value to your own peace, and as the most powerful means of usefulness. The most potent human engine of utility is influence, and this depends entirely on reputation. Number six, manage your worldly concerns with economy and discretion. Avoid the inconvenience, embarrassment, and vexation of being in debt. Conduct your business with attention and diligence, and have your accounts in such a condition that you will be at no loss to ascertain the true state of your affairs. Men often become unjust and injurious to others, without having intended any such thing, merely by a confused and careless manner of transacting their business. Such a man, after a while, feels an unconquerable aversion to a scrutiny into his affairs. He shuts his eyes against the ruin which he is bringing on himself, and heedlessly rushes forward in a path which habit or fashion is rendered agreeable. When at length an exigency arises which constrains him to adopt some measure to extricate himself from his difficulties, he is placed under strong temptation to resort to a course which is not strictly honorable. He persuades himself that if he can save his credit for the present, he will be able to rectify everything by diligence and good fortune, and to preserve his friends from suffering on his account. But these efforts to recover lost ground commonly prove ineffectual, and render the situation of the person more involved than before. He finds, at length, that he is sinking, and this discovery often produces a desperate recklessness. He plunges deeper and deeper into debt, and often drags to ruin not only his own family, but some of his friends, 
who confided too implicitly in his truth and integrity. It is also too common for men who have failed in trade to resort to means for the support of a helpless family, which a sound moral faculty never can approve. The temptation arising from the tender love of wife and children is indeed very strong but not invincible. In the commercial world, there are many illustrious examples of merit, honor, and the strictest probity in men who had it in their power to defraud their creditors or to deeply involve their confiding friends, but who chose rather to look haggard poverty in the face and to see their beloved families descending from affluence into the veil of obscurity than to be guilty of a dishonorable act. And in the long run, this turns out more to the benefit of those persons than any advantage obtained by a resort to shifts and evasions not entirely consistent with the highest integrity. He who sacrifices reputation for present comfort buys it at too dear a rate. The merchant who, when he fails, loses his reputation for truth and integrity will meet with but little favor from the world and will have very little chance of rising again. But he who has been unfortunate and yet maintains his integrity and preserves his character, unsullied, is often able to enter again into business under favorable auspices, and is encouraged and aided in his attempts to gain a living by men of wealth and standing, so that such a man is often successful to such a degree that he has it in his power to compensate those from whom benefit was derived in the day of his calamity. Beware of being governed by ambition in your commercial enterprises. The pride of doing a large business and of being considered as at the head of the profession seduces many aspiring young merchants. And greediness of gain tempts still more to engage in hazardous speculations and to trade to an extent not authorized by the capital which they have at command. In this way, bankruptcies become so common that they cease to excite much surprise. Families delicately educated and long accustomed to the luxuries as well as the comforts of life are reduced to poverty. Multitudes of such families are found in our large commercial cities who are really more properly the objects of benevolence than the common beggar who clamorously solicits your charity. The real privations and sufferings of such are not fully known, for from the desire of avoiding the contempt and the pity of vulgar minds, such persons spread a decent veil over their indigence and prefer to pine secretly in want rather than to seek relief by a public disclosure of their necessities. The Christian philanthropist will, however, seek out such sufferers and will contrive methods of bestowing relief upon them in a way consistent with the delicacy of their feelings. The above remarks are particularly adapted to those who engage in commerce, but they are not inapplicable to others. It is true, integrity is the soul of a merchant, but it is a sterling quality which every man ought to possess, and all men are liable to be reduced to a state of indigence by a long series of untoward events. My counsel, then, is that you commence and pursue business with prudence and when unfortunate that you so act as to reserve your integrity and your reputation by resorting to no equivocal means of relief, but resolve to act in conformity with the strictest rules of justice and honor. Number seven, aim at consistency in your Christian character. There is a beauty in moral consistency which resembles the symmetry of a well-proportioned building where nothing is deficient.
nothing redundant. Consistency can only be acquired and maintained by cultivating every part of the Christian character. The circle of virtues must be complete without chasms or obliquities. A character well proportioned and nicely balanced in all its parts we are not very frequently permitted to witness. For while in one branch there is vigor and even exuberance, in another there may be the appearance of feebleness and sterility. The man who is distinguished for virtues of a particular class is apt to be deficient in those which belong to a different class. This is so commonly the fact that many entertain the opinion that the same person cannot excel in every virtue. Thus, it is not expected that the man of remarkable firmness and intrepidity should at the same time be distinguished for meekness and gentleness. But after making due allowances for a difference of constitutional temperament, we must maintain that there is not nor can there be any incompatibility between the several virtues of the Christian life. They are all branches of the same root, and the principle which affords nourishment to one communicates its virtue to all. Is all truth is harmonious, however it may, on a superficial and partial view, seem to be contradictory, so all the exercises of moral goodness are not only consistent, but assist and adorn each other. This is so much the case that symmetry of Christian character, as by some distinguished casuistical writers, been laid down as a necessary evidence of genuineness. And it has been assisted on as probable that where one virtue seems to exist in great strength, while others are remarkably wanting, it is a mark of spuriousness. There is much reason in this view of the subject, for men are frequently found whose zeal blazes out ardently and conspicuously so as to leave most others far back in the shade while they are totally destitute of the humility, meekness, and brotherly kindness which form an essential part of the Christian character. Some men are conscientious and punctilious in the performance of all the rites and external duties connected with the worship of God, who are inattentive to the obligations of strict justice and veracity in their intercourse with men. And on the other hand, many boast of their morality and yet are notoriously inattentive to the duties of religion. Real Christians, too, are often chargeable with inconsistency, which arises from a want of clear discernment of the rule of moral conduct in its application to particular cases. For while the general principles of duty are plain and easily understood by all, the ability to discriminate between right and wrong in many complicated cases is extremely rare. This delicate and correct perception of moral relations can only be acquired by the divine blessing on our assiduous exertions. It is too commonly taken for granted that Christian morals are a subject so easy that all close study of it is unnecessary. This is an injurious mistake. Many of the deficiencies and inconsistencies of Christians are owing to a lack of clear and correct knowledge of the exact rule of moral conduct. On no subject will you find a greater diversity of opinion than in regard to the lawfulness or unlawfulness of particular practices, and even good men are often thrown into difficulty and doubt respecting the proper course to be pursued. But while many cases of inconsistency arise from ignorance of the exact standard of rectitude, more must be attributed to heedlessness and forgetfulness. Men do not act sufficiently from principle, but too much from customs, from fashion, and from habit. 
Thus, many actions are performed without any inquiry into their moral character. There is an obtuseness in the moral sensibility which permits evils to pass without animadversion. Another cause of the inconsistency so commonly observed is the prevalence which certain passions or appetites may obtain in a time of temptation. The force of the internal principles of evil is not perceived when the objects and circumstances favorable to their exercise are absent. A venomous snake seems to be harmless while chilled with cold. So soon manifests his malignity when brought near the fire. So sin often lies in the bosom hid, as though it were dead until some exciting cause draws it forth into exercise. And then the person himself is surprised to find the strength of his own passions above anything which he had before conceived. Thus men often act in certain circumstances in a way altogether contrary to the general tenor of their conduct. It is by no means a fair inference from a single act of irregularity that the person who is guilty of it has acted hypocritically in all the apparent good actions of his former life. The true explanation is that principles of action which he has commonly been able to govern and restrain acquire in some unguarded moment or under the power of some strong temptation. A man who is usually correct and orderly may thus be overtaken in a fault. And as all are liable to the same frailties, there should exist a disposition to receive and restore an offending brother when he gives sufficient evidence of penitence. Man at his best estate in this world is an inconsistent creature. The only persons in whom this defect is not observed are the men who by grace live near to God and exercise a constant jealousy and vigilance over themselves. But when faith is weak and inconstant, great inconsistencies will mar the beauty of the Christian character. Young persons ought therefore to begin early to exercise this vigilance and to keep their hearts with all diligence lest they be ensnared by their own passions and overcome by the power of temptation. I counsel you then, my young friends, to aim at consistency. Cultivate assiduously every part of the Christian character so that there may appear a beautiful proportion in your virtue. The reflections to which I have been led in speaking of consistency of Christian character suggest the importance of urging upon you the government of your passions. A man who has no control over his passions is justly compared to a ship at sea, which is driven by fierce winds, while she neither is governed by the rudder nor steered by the compass. By indulgence, the passions gain strength very rapidly, and when once a habit of indulgence is fixed, the moral condition of the sinner is most deplorable and almost desperate. To preserve consistency, it is necessary to be well acquainted with the weak points in our own characters, to know something of the strength of our own passions, and to guard beforehand against the occasions and temptations which would be likely to cause us to act inconsistently with our Christian profession. Many men have successfully contended with their own passions, and although naturally of a hasty and irritable temper have been by constant discipline brought themselves into a habitual state of equanimity, so that however they may be conscious of the strugglings of the natural passions, they are kept so completely under restraint that to others they do not seem to exist. The anecdote which is related to Socrates and the physiognomist is instructive on this point. When the latter, upon examining the lines of the philosopher's face, pronounced that he was a man of bad temper, 
and exceedingly irascible, the disciples of Socrates laughed him to scorn, as having betrayed the weakness of his art by so totally mistaken the true disposition of their master. But he checked their ridicule by acknowledging that his natural temper had been truly represented by the physiognomist, but that by the discipline of philosophy he had been able to acquire such a mastery over his passions that their existence was not apparent. To achieve a victory of this kind is more honorable than to conquer in the field of battle. According to the saying of the wise man, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that rules a spirit than he that takes a city. And again, he that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Learn then, my young friends, to bridle your passions and govern your temper from your earliest days. Number 8. Be contented with the station and circumstances in which providence has placed you. Never repine at God's dealings towards you, nor envy those who are above you in worldly advantages. Do not consider so much what you want as what you have. Look less at those above you than at those in inferior circumstances. Accustom yourselves to look on the bright rather than the dark side of the picture. Indulge not in unreasonable fears nor give way to feelings of despondency. Exercise fortitude and maintain tranquility of mind. Do not be ruffled and disconcerted by every little cross event which may occur. Do not place your happiness at the disposal of everyone who may be disposed to speak an unkind word or to do an unhandsome thing. Learn to possess your souls in patience. Believe in that when appearances are darkest, the dawn of a more comfortable day is near. Number nine. Let your intercourse with men be marked by a strict and conscientious regard to truth, honor, justice, kindness, and courtesy. We should certainly have recommended politeness as a happy means of polishing social intercourse and affording pleasure to those with whom you are conversant. But many are accustomed to connect an unpleasant idea with this word. But surely genuine politeness, if not itself a virtue, spreads a charm and a beauty over that which is virtuous. And certainly there is no merit in awkwardness and clownishness. But our chief object under this particular is to urge upon you a constant and punctilious regard to the social virtues. Be honest. Be upright. Sincere. Men of your word. Faithful to every trust. Kind to everybody. Respectful where respect is due. Generous according to your ability. Grateful for benefits received and delicate in the mode of conferring favors. Let your integrity be unsuspected. Never resort to any mean or underhand measure, but let your conduct and conversation be characterized by frankness and candor, by forbearance and a spirit of indulgence and forgiveness. In short, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Number 10. Live not merely for yourselves, but also for the good of others. Selfishness contracts the soul and hardens the heart. The man absorbed in selfish pursuits is incapable of the sweetest, noblest joys of which our nature is susceptible. The author of our being has ordained laws according to which the most exquisite pleasure is connected not with the direct pursuit of our own happiness, but with the exercise of benevolence. On this principle it is that he who labors wholly for the benefit of others, 
and as it were forgets himself, is far happier than the man who makes himself the center of all of his affections, the sole object of all of his exertions. On this principle it was that our Savior said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Resolve, therefore, to lead lives of usefulness. Be indifferent to nothing which has any relation to the welfare of man. Do not be afraid of diminishing your own happiness by seeking that of others. Devise liberal things, and let not avarice shut up your hand from giving to him that needs, and from promoting the cause of piety and humanity. Number 11. Be faithful and conscientious in the discharge of all duties which arise out of the relations which you sustain to others. Relative duties are far more numerous than all others, because the occasions requiring their performance are constantly occurring. The duties of parents, of children, of brothers and sisters, of neighbors, of masters and servants, of teachers and pupils, of magistrates and citizens, of the learned professions of trade, of the rich and the poor, occupy a very large portion of the time and attention of every man, and he's furnished a proper test of character. He who is faithful in little is faithful also in much, and he who is not attentive to the daily recurring duties of his station in vain claims a reputation of virtue or piety by splendid acts of public beneficence. Though I give all my goods to feed the poor and have not charity, it profits me nothing. Number 12. Exercise incessant vigilance against the dangers and temptations by which you are surrounded, and by which you will certainly be assailed. These dangers are too numerous to be specified in detail, but I will mention a few. Guard solicitously against all approaches toward infidelity. Reject unbelieving thoughts and skeptical doubts from the beginning. Even if the system of infidelity were true, it promises no comfort and cannot possibly be serviceable to you. But the best security will be to study diligently the evidences of religion, and to be ready to meet the cavils of infidelity at all points. Make yourselves well acquainted with the best authors on this subject, and let your faith rest on the firm ground of evidence. Another danger against which you must be watchful is pleasure, sensual pleasure. Worldly amusements, however innocent they may appear, are replete with hidden dangers. These things exhilarate the spirits and excite the imagination until reason and conscience are hushed and the real end of living is forgotten. For the sake of pleasure, everything important and sacred is neglected, and the most valuable part of human life wasted in unprofitable engagements. Beware, then, of the vortex of dissipation, and especially of the least approach toward the gulf of intemperance. On that slippery ground many strong men have fallen, never to rise. The trophies of this insidious and destructive vice are widely spread on every side, and the wise and the good have come to the conclusion that there is no effectual security against this enemy, but in a resolute and persevering abstinence from inebriating drink. Taste not, touch not, handle not the unclean thing. Seek your happiness, dear youth, in the pursuit of useful objects, and in the performance of duty, and then you will be safe and will have no reason to envy the votaries of sensual pleasure. Number 13. A counsel near akin to that which has been just given is govern your tongue. 
More sin, it is probable, is committed and more mischief done by the small member than in all other ways. The faculty of speech is one of our most useful endowments, but it is exceedingly liable to abuse. He who knows how to bridle his tongue is therefore in Scripture denominated a perfect man. And again of him who seems to be religious and bridles not his tongue, it is declared that that man's religion is vain. The words which we utter are a fair index of the moral state of the mind. By your words, says our Lord, you shall be justified, and by your words shall you be condemned. Not only are sins of the tongue more numerous than others, but some of them are the most heinous of which man can be guilty, even that one sin which has no forgiveness is the sin of the tongue. Not only should all profaneness of sinity and falsehood be put far away, but you should continually endeavor to render your conversation useful. Be ever ready to communicate knowledge, to suggest profitable ideas, to recommend virtue and religion, to rebuke sin and give glory to God. Beware of evil speaking. A habit of detraction is one of the worst which you can contract. It is always indicative of an envious and malignant heart. Instead of prostituting its active and useful member to the purposes of slander, employing and defending the innocent and the injured. Permit me to suggest the following brief rules for the government of the tongue. Avoid loquacity. In a multitude of words there lacks not sin. If you have nothing to communicate which can be useful, be silent. Think before you speak. How many painful anxieties would be prevented by obeying a simple common sense precept? Especially be cautious about uttering anything in the form of a promise without consideration. Be consciously regardful of truth, even to a tittle. In all that you say, never speak what will be likely to excite bad feelings of any kind in the minds of others. Be ready on all suitable occasions to give utterance to good sentiments, especially such as may be useful to the young. Listen respectfully to the opinions of others but never fail to give your testimony modestly but firmly against error. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. Number 14. Keep a good conscience. Wickedness had no other punishment than the stings of conscience which follow evil actions. It would be reason enough to induce every considerate man to avoid that which is producive of so much pain. No misery, of which the human mind is susceptible, is so intolerable and so irremediable as remorse of conscience and it is liable to be renewed as often as a guilty action is distinctly recollected. It is true that conscience, by means of error and repeated resistance to its dictates, may become callous, seared as with a hot iron. But this apparent death of moral sensibility is no more than a sleep. In unexpected time and in circumstances of most inconvenience, conscience may be aroused. It may exert more tremendous power than was ever before experienced. The long arrearages of sins committed while no notice seemed to be taken of them now demand and enforce consideration. Joseph's brethren seem to have almost forgotten their unnatural and cruel conduct in selling them as a slave into a foreign country. But when many years had elapsed and they found themselves environed with difficulties and dangers in that very land, the remembrance of their crime painfully rushed upon their minds.
and extorted from them mutual confessions of their guilt. God, said they, has found out the iniquity of his servants. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear, therefore is this distress come upon us. Men often endeavor to escape from the stings of a guilty conscience by a change of place, but the remedy is ineffectual. The transgressor may traverse a widest ocean and ascend the loftiest mountains, and may bury himself in the dark recesses of the desert. But he cannot fly so far, nor conceal himself so effectually as to escape from his tormentor. In some cases the agonies of remorse have been so intolerable that the guilty perpetrator of great wickedness has preferred strangling and death to a miserable life, and has rushed uncalled into the presence of his judge. And in other cases, men guilty of bloody crimes have found the pangs of remorse so intolerable that they have voluntarily given themselves up to justice, and by a voluntary confession have convicted themselves when no human witnesses were competent to prove their guilt. But what man is there who has not committed sins a recollection of which gives him sensible pain? And such acts often stand out in strong relief in the retrospect of the past. No effort can obliterate such things from the memory. We may turn away our eyes from the disagreeable object, but the painful idea will return again. And thus men whose consciences are not seared or haunted by guilt, as by a troublesome ghost, and often their sins find them out and stare them in the face when danger threatens or when calamity has overtaken them. Why moral sensibility should be so much more exquisite at some times than others cannot be easily explained. But the fact is certain and is probably familiar to the consciousness of all. There may indeed exist a morbid susceptibility, an unreasonable scrupulousness and terror of conscience which is real and distressing disease and which yields only to physical remedies judiciously applied. Melancholy is not the effect of religious impressions, but is a state of a mind of a most unhappy kind, produced by a derangement of the physical system, and which leads the subject of it to fix his thoughts on those things which are most awful and gloomy. The same is true in regard to insanity. Many people entertain strong prejudices against experimental religion, because they apprehend that it endangers the reason and drives the timid and weak-minded into mania. Now, it is no doubt true that any strong emotion or passion may, when there is, exists a predisposition to the disease, disturb the regular exercise of reason, but that this danger is greater to persons deeply exercised about religion than to others is utterly without foundation. Fanaticism, it may be conceded, has a tendency to insanity. Indeed, it has long appeared to me that fanaticism, especially in its mildest forms, is nothing else than a species of insanity. My next counsel is that you set a high value upon your time. Time is short, and its flight is rapid. The swiftness of the lapse of time is proverbial in all languages. In scripture, the life of man is compared to a multitude of things which quickly pass away. After making their appearance, as to a post, a weaver's shuttle, a vapor, a shadow, and so on. All the works of man must be performed in time, and whatever acquisition is made of any good, it must be obtained in time. Time, therefore, is not only short, but precious. Everything is suspended on its no sooner present 
then it is gone, so that whatever we do must be done quickly. The precious gift is sparingly parceled out by moments, but the succession of these is rapid and uninterrupted. Nothing can impede or retard the current of this stream. Whether we are awake or asleep, whether occupied or idle, whether we attend to the fact or not, we are borne along by a silent but irresistible force. Our progressive motion in time may be compared to the motion of the planet on which we dwell, of which we are entirely insensible, or to that of a swift sailing ship which produces the illusion that all other objects are in motion, while we seem to be stationary. So in the journey of life we pass from stage to stage, from infancy to childhood, from childhood to youth, from youth to mature age, and finally, ere we are aware of it, we find ourselves declining toward the last stage of earthly existence. Time wasted can never be recovered. No man ever possessed the same moment twice. We are indeed exhorted to redeem our time, but this relates to a right improvement of that which is to come. For this is the only possible way by which we can redeem what is irrevocably past. The counsels which I would offer to the young on this subject are think frequently and seriously on an inestimable value of time. Never forget that all is dear and worthy of pursuit must be accomplished in the short span of time allotted to us here. I conclude my counsels to the young by a serious and affectionate recommendation to everyone who reads these pages to make immediate preparation for death. I know that the gay youth are unwilling to hear this subject mentioned. There is nothing which casts a greater damp upon their spirits than the solemn fact that death must be encountered, and that no earthly possessions or circumstances can secure us from becoming as victims on any day. But if it is acknowledged that this formidable evil is inevitable, and that the tenure by which we hold our grasp of life is very fragile, why should we act so unreasonably, and I may say madly, as to shut our eyes against the danger? If indeed there was no way of preparing to meet this event, there might be some reason for turning away our thoughts from immediate destruction. But if by attention and exertion it is possible to make preparation for death, then nothing can be conceived more insane than to refuse to consider our latter end. How often are we called to witness the decease of blooming youths in the midst of their pleasures and prospects? Such scenes have been exhibited within the observation of all of you. Dear friends and companions have been snatched away from the sight of some of you. The grave has closed upon many whose prospects of long life were as favorable as those of their survivors. Now, my dear young friends, what has so frequently happened in relation to so many others may take place with regard to some of you. This year, you may be called to bid farewell to all your earthly prospects and all your beloved relatives. The bare possibility of such an event ought to have the effect of engaging your most serious attention and of leading you to immediate preparation. Do you ask what preparation is necessary? I answer reconciliation with God and a meetness for the employments and enjoyments of the heavenly state. Preparation for death includes repentance toward God for all our sins. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and reliance on His atoning sacrifice regeneration of heart and reformation of life, and finally a lively exercise of piety accompanied with a comfortable assurance of the divine favor. 
In short, genuine and lively piety forms the essence of the needed preparation. With this, your death will be safe and your happiness after death secure. But to render a deathbed not only safe but comfortable, you must have a strong faith and clear evidence that your sins are forgiven and that you have passed from death unto life. Be persuaded then, before you give sleep to your eyes, to commence your return to God, from whom, like lost sheep, you have strayed. Prepare to meet your God. Be also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man comes. Seek deliverance from the fear of death by a believing application to him who came on purpose to deliver us from this bondage. With his presence and guidance, we need fear no evil. Even while passing through the gloomy valley of the shadow of death, he is able by his rod and his staff to comfort us and make us conquerors over this last enemy.